Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and they share their story. They might have overcome adversity, they may still be very much on their own journeys, but they all have stories, stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. My guest on this episode is a former doctor, now a comedian and writer. Some may say it's not an obvious career progression, but that's just the start of what makes this person extraordinary. Adam Kay worked as a doctor for six years before leaving the profession in 2010. He kept a journal of his experiences working for the NHS, which later became the two million copy bestseller, This Is Going To Hurt. His tales included saving his first life, the long nights spent in A&E, and removing many foreign objects from all sorts of body parts. It became the best-selling non-fiction title of the decade, spending over a year at number one in the Sunday Times bestseller chart. And now he's educating kids with his first children's book, Kay's Anatomy. And Adam Kay joins me here now. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Well, I'm very excited. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, And I first discovered you on Twitter because we have a mutual friend, Tim, we do, yeah. Yeah, so and that's how I discovered you there. And then in the I nice old you... days of Twitter, when there was yeah. only about thirty people on there, and none of them were Nazis. Exactly, <laughs> it was a really fun, friendly. It was a great place to get company. You know, it, it was, was it really was. And I followed you on Twitter, and for me, you know, I'm an I'm a, like a kind of I'm an. I'm a patient of the NHS for about 13 years. So, and I have lots of doctors in my life who I do see as human. And when you released that book, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I, I want to read this insight. I, I've always wondered how do doctors do it? And I suppose reading it, I realised it. They sometimes they can't, and and we mistakenly do not see them as human. And we don't we don't want to see them as human. I don't. We're think. told not to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you know. You've 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 had more experience with the NHS than probably almost anyone listening. Um, and when you know you, you're meeting your surgeon and they're telling you what they're going to do, you don't want to think of them as being too human because humans make mistakes. You mm-hmm. want to somehow elevate them in your mind to someone who's totally infallible. That's part of it's part of the defence mechanism we we all have. Um, but the flip side of that is that the doctors themselves stop thinking of themselves as as human and uh, maybe don't look after themselves as 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 much as they as they should do. Um, I'll never forget. I used to do this this clinic um, once a week for a year, and it would always, always, always overrun. Um, mm. because the traditional mismatch between number of doctors and number of patients. Mm-hmm. And um and it would overrun like significantly, like two, three hours. And obviously, you know, at eight o'clock when it was meant to be gone at five o'clock, I was just apologising and apologising to these people who were who were rightly getting cross about the, you know, the car park and the the, the babysitter and all of that. And it's, it was no good. But not once in a year of this did any patient ever say, "Oh, you probably don't want to be here either," um, because I, I didn't. Right? Yeah, I didn't. No one does. It's a very real thing, isn't it? No, no breaks no just not being treated like a you want to do you know everyone the million and a half people who work in the nhs desperately want to do their best for Mm. for the patients for everyone that's why they sign up in the first place but um you know annoyingly 
the system doesn't always allow that to happen. And that's the sort of thing that I wanted to get across in that uh, in that book. And I'm really glad that that's something that you 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 zoned in on when you when you read it. It's um, the book's a bit of a confidence trick because it sells itself as funny, silly stories, and it, and it is, I guess, there is that in there. But ultimately, it it hopefully makes people think about something more serious, which is you know what it's actually like to be there working on the front line. Well, I did wonder that because when when I read it, you know, if you had any kind of medical treatment um, and some people might be quite naive to to what really goes on. And if if you'd sold it as something else, would people have wanted to buy it? Because some of us want to live life ignorant and, and naive to these things. Do you think it would have been as big a success? I mean, if I'd have called it a harrowing polemic about the state of the NHS, I think it would have sold 15 copies and we wouldn't be chatting on your on your podcast today. Um, Possibly. But, um, um, but yeah, I wanted, you know, the, the, the skill such as it is that I have is telling funny stories. And I wanted to lean into that and use that as the vehicle to trick people who otherwise might not have read a book about what it's actually like, you know, as a, as a human being, you know, work, working in the NHS um, and get, get that audience of people and get people thinking about something they wouldn't have otherwise thought about before. Mm. And people that are still in the NHS couldn't write a book like this. And it's only you that could do this. I mean, I've not invented the genre of the medical memoir by by a <laughs> no. century, but I've, you know, and, but the fact that I, I have left the profession allowed me to, um, well, it meant I had the time to do it. You probably yeah. don't have time to, to, to rush out a book if you're working a hundred hour weeks. Because uh, the truth of it is, a normal day at work for a healthcare professional, there is the funny stuff and there is the desperately sad stuff. And they're often right, you know, next to each other. Like, you know, I'd be, I, I worked on labour wards. Um, mm. uh, I was an obstetrician. So you know, I'd be in an antenatal clinic or something um, one day and then something, someone would say something or do something. And I think I you know, must, must write this one down. I'm going to be telling this anecdote <laughs> for the next, you know, decade. And then, the next patient you see, you can't find the baby's heartbeat and it's the most, you know, agonising, awful moment mm. of this family's life. And it's, that, that is the nature of the, 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 the job. And that's the authenticity of the book. It genuinely, the, the journals were written with no agenda other than maybe being quite cathartic and helping you offload in, in private, I suppose. I mean, that's that exactly right? right. That's exactly right. It's the... Any time I say this, it feels so weird because it's so unnatural, but they don't teach you how to cope at medical school. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, there's, they'll teach you how to, you know, resuscitate someone or they'll teach you even how to break bad news. But there's, there's never any discussion that that has an impact back on you. Mm -hmm. And so you have to find your own way of coping Mm. and, uh, you know, and that's that's why there's a lot of you know alcohol mm-hmm. addiction when, amongst doctors. There's and and recreational drugs as well, mm-hmm. and it's why a lot of people leave the profession because they can't cope. And it's I why... wondered that if everyone has their shelf life and then they just have to go. I mean, everyone has a limit. There's a lot of very 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 robust you know people working there who who manage to just have thicker armor. 
th- than well, I did. What does that really mean? Because when we say robust, you know, because the British culture, you're not supposed to share emotion, you're not supposed you're not, to be And it's very, very, and very that... unhelpful. Very unhelpful. Mm. I thought about you a lot in lockdown. Um, like I said at the start, you know, I'm a big fan. I've read every single book. I came to your theatre show. Uh, me and my mum WhatsApp about you and talk about you. I, I took her to the... <laughs> I'm coming across as a bit creepy, um, but my, I took my mum to the theatre show as well. And, you know, she's having a, a lot of treatment as well in, in the NHS. So we kind of bond over you and, and discuss you. And when we were all clapping, we were like, I wonder what Adam Kay thinks about all the clapping. And, you know, it, in one, for me, I thought, great everyone's appreciating the people on the ground and actually that it's a multidisciplinary approach. It's not just these godlike consultants, it's a whole team. Exactly. You know, and I already had that appreciation, but it was great to see the whole street and everywhere we turn to have that. Um, But I wonder what it was like for you because you're sort of, you know, on on the outside looking in, but actually knowing what the NHS would have been going through and what still are going through. How, How did that feel? So, um, yeah, obviously a lot of my friends and my family, you know, still work on the NHS and it's been very painful to, you know, to see these people who've always gone so far above and beyond having to go even further to literally prevent the NHS from collapsing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and people, people have moved out of their family homes for weeks and months on end so they don't bring back home a potentially fatal virus to a vulnerable member of their family. They've, you know, they've worked double, triple shifts. They've constructed intensive care units out of dust, out of disused corners of the hospital and old operating theatres. If they were lucky enough to have protective equipment, you know, they would they would come home with um, pressure sores on their faces um, from the from the masks they they had to wear. Six hundred and twenty people, according to the medical examiner's office, um, lost their lives in the in the first waves of, of the virus. It's it's unimaginable for the for the people who are who've been working and i i thought it was i thought it was great that there was this outpouring of of love for the nhs mm. obviously that isn't the same as them being adequately paid them having the adequate resources to do what they they need to do but it made me think that it reminded us what a good thing we've got, what a uniquely precious thing we have in the yeah. NHS. And it made me hope, because through such an awful time, you have to look for the positives. And it really made me hope that if the NHS ever comes under some existential threat in the in the future and the spectre of private healthcare or an insurance system or a two-tier system is 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 rearing its head, then I think people would get to their feet and they would shout louder than ever and fight harder than ever to, to, to keep the NHS going. And also, you, you know, going back to that point about the gratitude, practising the gratitude for what we've got. And, you know, part of the lockdown was we don't want to overwhelm services and we don't want to go to A&E if we don't have to, which you would hope most people live by that rule anyway. Of, of, but then you get the opposite end. I was, I was quite ill and ignoring symptoms because I thought it was something I could just treat myself. And then it turned to sepsis and I collapsed. Oh it was just a um, urine infection and yeah. I ignored and obviously which was completely stupid and then ended up in hospital um but I wondered 
Um, in the book, and uh, this is going to hurt you, know, you talk about some of the funnier sides of people presenting at A&E with things they tripped and fell on that ended up inserted mm-hmm. in their body. Mm-hmm. And I just I just wondered, similarly, what about uh, when you would be out and about in your personal life, down the pub or at the gym, when people knew you worked in gyne, did you get any sort of um, people doorstepping you and asking you for advice or diagnosis on the treadmill or anything like that? <laughs> well, um, I mean, I'm now 10 years out of the game mm. and, uh, and so I'm pretty sure that uh, people would only contact me if I, they're more likely to ask, you know, their milkman uh, for, for <laughs> medical advice before they're going to ask me now. But, um, but certainly over the years, um, um, less so now, but more when I was like in my uh, early 30s, um, everyone was getting pregnant around uh, in, my, in my friendship group, so there was lots of. Uh, I was a bit of a um, an on call uh, antenatal clinic, um, <laughs> which is. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and I've had the, the odd thing where people would um, people would show me their rash and whatever. But uh, lovely, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> See, I I have it now where people meet me to make common ground. They tell me um, about any kind of mild uh, sort of burn they've had on the, their thumb when opening <laughs> the oven. When they touch the toaster, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I'm mm-hmm. just, it's right, uh-huh. great. Yeah. Okay. We've got so much in common, you and I. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm glad people don't suddenly flash you or anything like that. Then that, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> But yeah, the odd the odd rash. Um, so so now this new book, I've actually got the book in front of me, um, and love the illustration. Uh, Adam Adam Kay's Kay's Anatomy, and this is for age eight to twelve years old, isn't it? Um, it it's for age eight to twelve, but mostly I think it's for, the, for their parents who never quite understood uh, the the body in the first place. That's if they ever learnt oh, it in GCSE uh, biology. I printed off the best review. I thought if it gets a bit serious, I can read this. I've got to read it. I'm sure you you know this one. Uh, much of it is about bums, poos, bogies, etc., which my eight year old thinks is the funniest thing in the world. But there's a section at the back about human reproduction with diagrams of a penis, testes, and a vagina, complete with labels for the labia, clitoris, etc. Useful for me, but not appropriate for my daughter. What's yeah, your response? I, mean, that's, I think that's extraordinary. Um, so the book was written with in close collaboration with uh, educational experts and indeed mm-hmm. sex ed experts to make sure that as well as the, as, the, as the poo and the wee and the bogeys, it was totally delivering everything they need to know for their, for their, for their syllabus. Um, and this this gentleman um, can restrict his daughter's reading as much as he likes, but she's going to be learning it at school, and um, and it's very very unhelpful and unhealthy um, to to stop people knowing about their bodies. That's how taboos form. Mm-hmm. That's how you know people have yeah, end up having you know ending up in all sorts of all sorts of trouble in the in the future um but um if it taught him where the clitoris is then i I guess that's that's something isn't it (laughs) you're just always helping people with these books aren't you (laughs) i wondered if this was the age that you became interested in medicine yourself was it always from from a young age so yeah i i grew up in a in a medical family and so it was like it was always going to be like the default setting for how my 
how my life was going to was going to go. But um, I've always been fascinated by the the body, and I guess part of part of the reason for this book was the body's never been quite as cool for for kids as like dinosaurs or space and and stuff like that and uh, and I just wanted to share my enthusiasm and share some of the you know the, ri- the ridiculous incredible you know things that the body it's it's the most advanced bit of kit you know ever ever invented anywhere um it's like the the brain is made up of a hundred trillion different connections, which is the number of stars in a thousand galaxies. If you had a hundred trillion pounds, you could buy every house on the the planet. And um, it's like these, um, it's just extraordinary every aspect mm. of the of the body. And um, I guess again, this book's a bit of a confidence trick, much like my first one was. You mm-hmm. know, draw them in and keep them reading. You know the the disgusting uh, facts that you know, you know about the year of their life they spend on the on the toilet and uh, you know, <laughs> and the fact that you you know astronauts breathe in recycled wee and the fact that you're you're covered by a, a, a cloud of dead skin and fart particles you know keep keep them reading with that but at the same time tell them the stuff that they they need to know and not just the the dry stuff that they need for their exams, but also the stuff that is important that they know about. So whilst we're talking about the brain and all the amazing stuff it does, we can also talk about anxiety and depression mm. and panic. And and we can talk about autism. We can talk about epilepsy and all these different things that, that these kids who are reading it or their friends um, may have. And um, talking about body image and talking about smoking and alcohol and lots of stuff that I suspect parents don't particularly want to have the conversation about. And even if they do, it maybe just helps them to have the facts. Mm. You know, I spent ages putting it together and making sure I said it all in the right way and consulting with experts in in every, you know, area. So um, I've, you know, they can subcontract some of the uh, some of the less fun bits of parenting to, to to this book, and and ideally the kids just go away and you know up to their bedrooms and and read the book for their for their horrible poo facts, and uh, <laughs> and along the way just sort of you know get a bit of a get a bit of a, a lesson in some of the some of this quite important stuff. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful, and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, that's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so, oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I realised because I'm so excited about just being one-to-one with you, I've been talking about the book as if every single person will have, will have read This Is Going To Hurt. And actually, we know two million of them have read it. Um, but for the people that haven't, um, you know, when I, f- I finished the book in uh, one evening, I did one evening, then slept for a bit, then woke up and finished it in the morning. I just couldn't put it down. Then I sent copies to lots of different people. And, um, you know... It is cliche about you, you, you laugh in it, then you start crying. But it did change my life when I shut the book. I, it, I felt lots of different... I felt anger for you, the way you'd been treated. Um, I felt elated and happy what you were doing now. And for people that haven't read the book, um, are you comfortable in saying why you left the NHS? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, in the most basic terms, I had a bad day at work. And, you know, we all have bad days at work as part of as part of life. But when you're on a labour ward, when all you want from every case is a healthy mum plus a healthy baby, a bad day at work um, can be when you get neither of those two things. And I was the most senior doctor on the ward. And I basically realised that I couldn't face that kind of thing ever happening to me ever again. And however good you are, however hard you train, all the extra qualifications you get, there will always be these cases where a tragedy happens and you can't do anything um, to prevent it. And and it happens twice a decade if you're the most senior obstetrician on a labour ward. And like I say, I just realised that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't face that again. And I assumed what I would do was take six months off, 12 months off. And, um, and then I'd retrain in another corner of medicine. But, um, um, my plan B of, of writing, um, took off in a way that I didn't think that it, it it would, it would do at the time I was, I was writing for, for television. Um, and I, I, I just I thought all I needed was just a break, and then um, I got I got into this um, new career, and 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 I did I didn't end up going going back, um, and since then I've I've been very aware that there isn't enough support for people who are who are who are struggling, and in fact the most you know you've listed some. S- some achievements um, that this, this this book's had, which is uh, and it's wild to hear them. Uh, although those numbers, it's, it's, it's sort of extraordinary. But um, the biggest thing that's happened as a result of this book was um, I was invited. I've been invited by two secretaries of state for health to speak to them um, <laughs> about about the NHS and. The first Secretary of State I spoke to, and um, not much happened, but the second, Matt Hancock, he'd only just started his job. And he asked me, you know, what one thing could could 
could we do to change to help the NHS? And he'd read the book and was sort of having similar thoughts to you, I think, in terms of mm. like surprise and, and, and anger and sadness. And I said, we need to do more to support the, to support the, the staff. And um, I, when I spoke to him, I, I, was, I was playing at the, at the West End, um, as, as, as I, you know, as I do quite, quite often or, or did do when it was legal. Um, yeah. um, and I said that in my, in my dressing room, there was a sign that says theatre helpline. If you've got any worries at all, if you're struggling about anything, yeah. phone this number 24 seven, free phone. We'll, you know, we'll point you in the right direction. And I said, there's, there's no such thing for for doctors there are you know there there are some small organizations who are who are doing mm-hmm. wonderful things but there's no like national there's nothing that doctors can all access mm-hmm. and he was surprised to hear that i mean his feet were only just under the the desk in his new job and i couldn't expect him to know that already he said let me go and see and have a go away and have a look and and he came back and said yeah i mean this is a big gap and he I'm not a spokesman for the Conservative Party by 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 a long shout, but um, he he did a he did a great thing, and he chucked a big load of money towards a, a service so that all doctors, in the first instance, um, c- can access um, mental health support when they're when they're struggling. And when he announced that this. Um, this it was it was originally just a service for London GPs that was a, it was a great service and it was ex- expanded it hugely across the country. And mm. when he announced this, uh, he name checked my book, right. and that was <coughs> that is far and away the you know the biggest thing that's happened because my my writing you know the the, the, the you know the, the the stuff I I did that I hoped a few people would read suddenly had a, a tangible effect that could help people who were in the position that I, I was a decade ago. And and that is that's the thing that I'm you know most proud of as a result of this book. Well this is how I see you. You know, you're such a catalyst for change. And I know um are you are you an atheist, is that right? Um I'm I'm culturally Jewish. Um, my right. family are Jewish but um sort of only in it for the food. Um, rather than, so yeah, but I'm sort of I, I don't I don't I don't have a god. So for me, I have a faith, and when I when I look at your journey, and I, you know, I've I've sort of seen the brilliant stuff you've done so much for the Lullaby Trust, the, the charity. Um, your uh, book to the NHS um, that I contributed to recently, you uh, donated the profits to um, NHS and Lullaby Trust. There, um, you've done so many different things for different people. And, you know, talking about those old feelings of ill-placed guilt and I can't do this if, I, if I'm if i not contributing the way I, I want to, then I have to leave. You've gone on to contribute in a, a way that is beyond anybody's wildest thoughts and dreams and touched more. You Leaving meant you could help more people um, and, and do all the things that you were unable to do there. And it's almost like this was your plan and this was your purpose and you're giving more than ever, don't you think? Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Um, yeah, I cer- yeah, I, 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 I'm, I've certainly got more time and more ability now to help people, um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to be to be in that position. You know, I'm one of 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are doing exactly the same thing. I'm not the only person who's who's championing uh, the mental health of, of medical health of, of, of medical professionals. But um, but um, yeah, I just feel immensely grateful for the for the position I'm uh, I'm mm. now in. Yeah. You touched on uh, going to meet the health secretaries. I know the the book um, closes with a letter to Jeremy Hunt. Uh, have you actually mm-hmm. met Jeremy Hunt then? Since I have, yes. Um, oh. I think it didn't didn't go very well. Um, Spill the tea. Okay. <laughs> we need to know. The, the, the tea goes <laughs> as follows. So um, I was. This is very shortly after the book, uh, This Is Gonna Hurt, first came out. A letter came through to my my publishers saying, you know, the Secretary of State would be delighted to meet Adam. And uh, I was like, is this a trap? Am I... (laughs) Am I going to be lynched by some <laughs> some civil servants on the way on the lift or something? Um, and uh, uh, and this was a man who I'd had so many things I wanted to say to, mm-hmm. and I'd been thinking about the impact of cuts to the health service budget and what that meant in you know in terms of. The impact of the, of the workers on the ground, and ultimately the impact on the on the patients who they were trying to care for, and and I think it had a devastating impact these the, these cuts. And so, um, I, I literally spent a day writing down all of the thoughts in my head about the stuff I wanted to You'd talk to him about. You'd have to take a and, list, and, wouldn't and you? I brought, yeah. I brought, I brought, I brought my my list. Um, he probably thought, "Oh, here he is with more diaries." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, you know, we sat down in his office and I was just like, question, 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 question. Um, he's an extremely clever man mm-hmm. and he's much, and he's extremely used to, um, to, to answering this sort of question. And um, it was like playing tennis against a pro, you know, however hard I tried as a terrible amateur tennis player. It was, you know, he didn't even need to think about it. He had the, he had the answer. But I kept going, ans- asking all my questions. And uh, he eventually said, what is this, an, an, an interview? I thought I was inviting you in for some nice question, you know, for a nice chat or something. And I was like, oh, never, whatever. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the our chat sort of quickly wound up after oh that. Um, and there was a... You know, no one likes leaving a room with this horrible, you know, tension in it. That's so, not British. No, you no, can't do that. So I, I apologised, obviously. I said, I'm really sorry if I came across uh, nicer in my book uh, than I do in real life. And he said, oh, no, I think you've been quite consistent. <laughs> Fair play. That's, oh, yeah. my gosh. Well, I kind of admired for the comeback. <laughs> and good. then that was that. And that was that. Um um, but you know, in in fairness, during the, the the pandemic, he has been a voice of sense and reason and pragmatism. Mm-hmm. You know, in the House of Commons and in the Health Select uh, Committee, asking the right questions. And you know, and he's it, in his in my eyes, he's not he's not totally. Um, managed to redeem himself but as i mean i've been very pleasantly surprised that he's been he's been knowledgeable and you know, as i say asking all the all the right questions so um mm. there's he isn't a pantomime villain you know yeah 
Yeah. Um, so sometimes what people come to this podcast for is, um, you know, tips and advice and, and coping mechanisms. And, you know, you talked about how the diaries very much um, were sort of a way for you to relieve some of the burden and, and to reflect. Do you have any other coping mechanisms that worked for you? Because when, you know, on reading the books, the, and also it was Night Before Christmas as well, another excellent uh, book that went to number one. And, you know, you talk about your shifts and you, and you talk about the ups and the downs and sometimes really the downs out outweighing the more joyous times. What else did you use? There were so many times in that book that were a reason for you to quit, quit, and you didn't. And what about people listening that are, are ready to give up on something? What What did you yeah. rely on? I mean, I, I would say I'm definitely the worst person to ask this question uh, to <laughs> as someone who failed to cope. But since then, I have learnt... And I've educated myself and I've helped educate other people about, you know, how to deal with with this sort of situation. You, you don't really class um, yourself as someone who failed to cope, do you? I did fail to cope and I didn't. But part of that was not having the right equipment, not having the right, my own, you know, toolbox of things. And the mm. diaries. So here's an example of, 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 of how I got things wrong. So. My parents knew that I'd left medicine. They didn't know why I'd left medicine until my book came out. My okay. husband didn't know why I'd left the profession. They didn't know, didn't know about this most pivotal, you know, moment of my life until a few months before that, when I first read out from my diaries up at the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. That that isn't healthy, mm -hmm. but it's also not unusual, and. I got and still get so many messages, emails and on Twitter and wherever from doctors, often very senior doctors, and it mm -hmm. always, always start the same way. I've never told anyone this, but. Yeah. So there's this potentially quite British, but also I hear it from doctors around the world, this, this thing about medics. It says you're a bloody doctor and you bloody get on with it. Stiff mm -hmm. upper lip, stiff drink, off you march. Um, so, but there are ways to cope mm -hmm. and there's, there's nothing magical about them. And the first thing is to take time out. Yeah. And that isn't necessarily possible in the NHS. Um, and it should, and it should, it should be, but people think, think it isn't. Um, like if, if your rotors stretch so hard, you know, that you know, no one can go home at five o'clock when they're meant to go home at five o'clock, it mm. sort of it feels impossible to say to someone, maybe you need a week off there. But those week, weeks off, you know, will help with the, the retention of staff because I'm not the only person who kept plowing on after a bad incident before realising you know, that I need to, I need to get out. And the, the second thing is to, to talk to people. Mm -hmm. And, um, ideally someone who is a professional in, in talking, um, but not necessarily, even if doctors and nurses and midwives and all the medical professionals are very bad at having a shoulder to, to cry on. You know, when, when you come home, how was your day? Yep, fine. Because yeah. it's easier to say, yeah, fine, than actually to open up and, you know, and risk the floodgates, you know, opening mm -hmm. too, too wide. But it's, it's crucial to have someone 
who you can just you can just be honest about your day at work if it was just a minor irritation or if it was a you know if it's something you need to have a full-blown cry about that's really important and for you know a million and a half people work in the NHS a lot of people who are listening uh, to us chatting now will work for the NHS but also the majority of people listening won't work for the NHS but Mm -hmm. every single one of those people will know someone who does that the numbers just mean that you know, it, uh, you, everyone's got a friend or a neighbour or a relative mm. who, who who works for the health service. Well, it does lead me um, to wondering, how are you now? Because, you know, you talked about actually what happens as a result of being so transparent and sharing and being open is you then get everybody privately offloading onto you and, and opening up because they can't do it within their profession. And I have the same. And because of social media, you're quite accessible at any time. So sometimes, you know, I wake up at half six in the morning and I have DMs particularly at the moment around domestic violence they can be quite graphic photos of injuries yeah. uh, terrible stories from women who are trapped at home right now and yeah. it, it, it can be quite overwhelming as being responsible and being you know I'm sure like me you have charities you signpost people to and experts but you know how, how do you deal with this new burden I'm, is that really horrible that no, no, no I, do you know what I mean it, I, know, I, know, I know exactly what you mean um I'm I now take my own mental well-being much more seriously than mm. I ever did before I, I, I never thought about it um before and there are things that I I do now um for, for you know uh but um, I don't keep anything bottled up. Yeah. And that's the crucial thing. And after this happened, my, my you know, my, my bad day at work, as I call it, I would wake up many nights of the week, you know, in a cold sweat, you know, bolt upright with my heart going 200 beats a minute, back in that operating theatre. Mm-hmm. And that happened for for years. Since I've been talking about it, it wasn't the process of of writing it down and getting it published, but it was more, you know, talking to people like you about it or getting up on stage and and reading Mm. out that diary entry. That has gone. And I don't know if it, it... it probably isn't like PTSD in the in the truest sense of it. I, I don't even know if it would have been because I think I was. Um, I don't think I did very well in my psychiatry exams. But um, whatever whatever I, I'm now doing by 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 talking about it has exercised those 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 demons. Mm. And I now take that approach with with everything. And if I'm struggling with anything, I've got my group of people that I can speak to. And a lot of that time, it's 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 James, my poor husband, who has to deal with it. And, <laughs> and sometimes he's not the right person to to speak to. And I'm so um I'm now closer, you know, to, to friends and indeed family. So I can so I've got these people who I know can mm. help me. And I know that I can help them if they're ever in the, you know, it's it's mutually beneficial to have that person. Um mm. But it does, it does take, it does take a toll. It really does. Um, but it's a case of knowing that it's taking a toll. Yeah, being because aware. Yeah. I didn't, I don't think I was aware of what it was doing to me when I was working in the profession. They mm. teach you in GCSE physics, Newton or one of that lot, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. And it's never equal, but there's always an opposite reaction. You just have to just have to be aware aware of that and, and make sure that you've got the you've got the the, the mechanisms in place. Mm. Well, one thing that has happened as a result of your books is you're adapting your book into a BBC comedy drama. And um, <laughs> is it true that Ben Whishaw is playing you? It, that is very true. Yes. And, so, did uh, you have a say in that? Was that I did? You... I mean, it was it was absolutely bizarre because it's like this standard like dinner party conversation of who would play you in the thing of your yeah. life, and then suddenly we're sat in some you know basement of a production company, literally having that discussion with uh, <laughs> with sort of A4 pages with lists of lists of actors. But for me. It's always been Ben Whishaw. It could never have been anyone else. I think he's such an amazing mm-hmm. actor. He's so versatile and so funny. I think he's a uh, he's a he's a proper national treasure. And mm. I, I was absolutely over the moon when he said <laughs> yes. It was just that's bizarre and uh, and brilliant. And uh, fingers crossed, viruses permitting, we are shooting in January. We were meant to have been shooting already, but right. as you know, a lot of telly has has, has bumped yeah. uh, bumped back a bit. But hopefully uh, in January, and uh, I'm very excited. So when will it be on telly in in another year's time? I guess I don't, that? to be honest, I don't really know. I guess it depends. I think I think it's now it takes a bit longer to to shoot things um, with them mm. um, in in COVID land, keeping everything everything and everyone safe and secure. Uh, but yeah, I imagine something like that. Don't yeah. quite know. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. That's something to we all need something to look forward to, and that is something to look forward oh. to. Um, so it, it's been so great to talk to you and I'm so pleased that I've, I've got your book here. This is going to be a present for my daughter. She's seven in March. So oh, I thought, you perfect. Know, yeah. Yeah. I thought I'd let her have this. Um, <laughs> so before I let you go, I want to just finish the chat by reading one more review because I love your Amazon reviews. <laughs> They're so funny. So th- this is a review for Adam's new book, Kay's Anatomy. It says, I can remember without even looking that the hippocampus is the memory section of the brain. This is because of the brilliant illustration of the hippo going camping. I also like how the large intestine is also depicted as wearing a beret. Do you think that sums the book up pretty well? I think it does. And uh, and it means I need to give huge, huge thanks to the wonderful illustrator, Henry Packer, um, who's just as big a part of the book as I am. And it's I, the, the drawings are, I'm just saying this dispassionately because I didn't do them, it was someone else. The drawings are so funny. And uh, I know that's something a lot of kids have, have, have picked up on. <laughs> Yeah. um, Adam, you've been so extraordinary. You are one of my heroes and I want to thank you for everything you've done for all of us and, and continue to do now. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.